The largest ever Andy Warhol exhibition and the first to open in Ireland 25 years launched today at the Hewlett Gallery in Dublin. Andy Warhol Three Times Out has been five years in the making, includes more than 250 works on loan from the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania and from other museums and private collections in the United States, Canada and Europe. The exhibition showcases a broad number of works including Warhol's iconic Campbell's soup cans, flowers and portraits of Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor, Jackie Kennedy and Chairman Mao. It also features the artist's self-portraits along with skulls, electric chairs and avant-garde films, namely Empire, Sleep, Kiss and Outer and Inner Space. Delighted to be joined by Jess Fahey, who went along to see the exhibition yesterday. In fact, in fact what sets this particular exhibition three times out apart from previous Andy Warhol exhibitions, would you say, Jess? I think it's just the amount of works. It's also the curation. So it's really well laid out and you get to experience so many different elements of what he did in his career. It's very thought provoking. Mm. Um, it basically takes up all of the Hugh Lane. So that's a, a large amount of space to be able to, you know, get to explore everything. And it is quite diverse, you know, so purposely picking things that showcase all the different ways that he was creative and inventive. So it's it's Andy Warhol everywhere in the gallery for this for this period of time. Tiny little section still has Irish art in the time of the formation of the Free State. So that's now surrounded mm. entirely by Andy Warhol, which is kind of interesting. Oh, very us. interesting uh, <laughs> way to look at his work indeed. Um, uh, of course, what is art? Who decides what is art? These are classic Andy Warhol questions. Uh, is that the is that the tenure of this exhibition? It is of his work generally. Yeah. I think what this does is it gives everyone the opportunity to go in and if you you know, want to sneer, you can sneer. If you want to enjoy it, you can enjoy it. I think it kind of makes almost like um, art, you know, judgment call for everybody. Everyone becomes their own little philosopher as they walk around and say, that's not art or that isn't, or that is, or why it is or why it isn't. And I think that's one of the things that you find anyway, you know, in what he was trying to do. He's trying to say, why are popular things not allowed to be art? Mm. Why does art have to be elitist? Why can't it be a bottle of Coke or a can of... A Campbell soup can, exactly. yeah, and and I presume the Campbell soup cans are there. I mean, you couldn't really have a, an extensive Andy Warhol there exhibition without them. Yeah, there's ten of them there. He originally had thirty two. Mm. Uh, originally arranged based on the flavor and what year it was released. So he did have a logical chronology to why he was putting each one where it was, and they were exhibited in uh, 1962 to not necessarily great acclaim, but certainly great interest. So famously, another gallery down the road put Campbell's cans in their window just to mock and yeah. Warhol but what that does is just create fame and notoriety and notice and that's what he was so good at doing too was courting fame and finding a way for people to pay attention uh, and he courted fame himself but he was also I don't think it's too harsh to say obsessed with the fame of others the celebrity of others not least of whom was Marilyn Monroe and the silk screen works are, mm-hmm. are part of this exhibition Yeah, so it is an interesting thing, his relationship to famous people. So it seems to come about from him being quite ill as a child. And he spent a lot of time, you know, cutting figures out of magazines and things. One of my favourite anecdotes comes from his nephew who said that uh, Andy Warhol's pose where he stands with his arms crossed comes from Shirley Temple, that that's what he copied it from. From a young age, he would sort of uh, mimic it. But by the time you get to the Marilyn silkscreens, it is 
still about fame and almost about him riding on the coattails of her fame. But it's made they were made just after her suicide. So there's an element, I think, possibly of a bit of expectation there as well. But then as things go on, he becomes really famous. Um, and it backfires on him a little bit because someone then tries to kill him by shooting mm. him, which he does survive. But then he uses his fame to make celebrities out of other people. And he would take photographs of people he'd meet in New York and call them superstars once he'd made a, taken a photograph. So he plays with the idea of how fame can be created, how, you know, hangers on or people being associated. Then they take some of that fame that it's almost a commodity that can be kind of passed around. So, again, it's those ideas that are explored in these works that, you know, we still can relate to today. And, you know, yeah. they're still part of a dialogue that we're still involved in. I think the inclusion of film and television works in this exhibition is vital to understanding Warhol. How important was that aspect of the work, do you think, in Warhol's overall of very much so. Uh, one of my favourite sort of jokey things he said, though, was that uh, he was giving up painting to work in film and then he made the silver film balloons, uh, which are in the exhibition, mm. recreated for the exhibition. So he's always making these kind of jokes about these things. But for him to see anything in a moving image meant that it was already um, more intriguing and more um engaging than if you just see a static 2D image. And in a way, he kind of progresses what we consider portraiture to be in the way that he uses film. So there's a room that's really fantastic to walk into that just has these portraits. Yeah, the pillar room in, in the Hewlin is painted black mm. to, to facilitate the, the, these video pieces of video art. That's yeah. quite, a, quite a departure, really, isn't it? It's so atmospheric. And you walk in and it's, you know, Salvador Dali and uh, Bob Dylan, and they're just sort of there trying not to move or twitching just a little bit and because they're almost sort of all eye level in this darkened room it's the oddest experience and it's one of the things that's so good about this exhibition is they use his film so well but one of the other things he was doing with film not just with portraiture mm. but there's the Empire one which is the long film eight hours long which I don't know anybody's ever watched it all eight hours but I'm sure they have and it's just a, a static well I suppose it's a a squared off shot of the of the Empire State Building, but it doesn't move. The film is moving. So there's nothing changing in what you're seeing apart from the flicker of the film. Yes, yeah. So he's playing around with what we mean when we even say film. You know, what, what part is the moving part? Is it the film recording it or the thing that it's recording? Yeah. So he does all of these kind of fun and bizarre, interesting things. And you were saying as you go around the various spaces and the various rooms in the Hugh Lane Gallery, there are different um, quotations outside the room which give you a real sense of what's going on inside. I like this one. I never wanted to be a painter. I wanted to be a tap dancer. He knew how to provoke, really, didn't he? Absolutely. He was famous for his interviews of where at one point he was asked, what is pop art? And he said, yes. You know, so that was the type of answer you might get from him. And he did this weird thing that you can see in interviews where he'd pretend like he couldn't speak or he was sort of uh, not understanding the question or mm. all of these bizarre things. In a way, it, it part of can lead into part of the cynicism about him, too, is that he purposely didn't answer because he didn't want to give, mm. you know, give up the, the con, if you like, that yeah. he, some people accuse him of. But I also think it's because art generally for us is what we experience it to be ourselves. If the art artist tells us too definitely what it is or what it isn't can take away some of the enjoyment of exploring it for ourselves. Uh, mind you, I mean, this statement does sound as if it's a very straightforward statement, but it is Andy Warhol making it. So I guess you have to work that one out. If you want to know all about Andy Warhol, just look at the surface of my paintings and films and me. And there I am. 
there's nothing behind it. Mm. And this is the room where we see self-portrait, isn't it? Yeah, and his self-portraits are uh, fascinating because he was obsessed with himself while also we know he was very insecure about what he looked looked like and you know there's this creation of a whole character the wigs mm. the glasses all of this kind of thing but then as he explores it through uh, you know an artistic medium they're they're very beautiful you know he be a- he's able to sort of create something beautiful out of himself but it is still a lie it is still a performance it is still a fiction you know so it's still layer upon layer upon layer and now today we're kind of so used to this now that we all curate our lives we all have that same idea of what way do we want to be seen you know the best angle for the selfie those kind of things So you're saying that selfies are not true no and there's filters as well I hate to break it to you but (laughs) yeah there are and he's doing that long before even a notion of social media the other side of this is um, I I talked about how he likes to provoke with citizens like I don't want to be a painter I want to be a tap dancer Mm. Um, the electric chair exhibit is part of this exhibition Mm. how shocking is it to simply see something as as bleak is that in front of your eyes? I think the most shocking thing about it is that because of the way he repeats the image and he said that when you repeat an image it kind of becomes meaningless that you see you know you feel yourself looking at it kind of thinking oh look at that colour or the difference between that one and that one because there's a series you of become them. kind of immune to the kind image the, to the shock of it which in a way we are from you know news cycles and all mm. of those things but then if you allow yourself the time just to focus in on it even as I'm talking about now I can kind of feel the hair on my back kind of you know my neck stand up because you think then about the last person that was in that you know that the that that is a thing that mankind did to mankind you know and it it opens it up to so many bigger issues and deeper and darker things of course this is an exhibition in the Hugh Lane Gallery where we have the Francis Bacon Mm. Gallery the recreation of that or studio rather the recreation of that studio and obviously the Hugh Lane is a place to go to, it's the go-to place for Francis Bacon works. Are there connections made between Bacon and Warhol? They even met. Yeah, they met in Paris in 74, I think. And uh, they um, definitely had a lot of connections in relation to some of the ideas about how to make a work. We certainly know that Warhol was a great admirer of Bacon's work. There's that darkness in Bacon as well that, you know, kind of you don't want to look away, even though it's mm. a little bit sort of traumatising to look at. But both of them are interested in kind of happy accident in the way that you could, even with silkscreen or using ink blot as Andy Warhol would, you could make an error and that changes the work and uh, Bacon basically created out of chaos. But I'm guessing that seeing this in the Hugh Lane Gallery and seeing Warhol, you know, in close proximity to a place that's so associated with Francis Bacon It must make you, did it make you look at the work of Warhol in new ways? It does, I think, actually. And, you know, there's, you know, photographs that uh, Warhol took of Bacon and things like that. And you kind of start to imagine these actual real, you know, connections between these people. And then one of the rooms sort of in between as you're walking through the gallery before you get to Bacon's studio has other works of collaboration that Andy Warhol did with people like uh, Basquiat, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat Mm. or um, uh, Peter Beer these kind of you know similar style of artists and they liked kind of chaos and creating and Peter Beard in particular was very close friends with Francis Bacon so you see these links and connections 
and that they communicated sometimes through actually making and collaborating a piece together. And that's mm. kind of the legacy then we get, which is an interesting thing. Yeah, and discussions and the debate around the commodification of art, you know, you, mm. you, you, you can go right back in time to, to talk about that. Yeah. But Andy Warhol, I suppose, has a particular uh, take on that whole area of things. The fact that he was a businessman and how that continues to influence contemporary art. What does this exhibition how, how did it make you feel about that side of Warhol's life and work yeah I mean it's there it's been there since people were creating art people pay for it you know it, it isn't a new thing but mm. what he did is he just very blatant about it and he said good art is good business you know if your art isn't making money then it's not good business and he was kind of as much a businessman genius in business as much as he was genius in art you could mm. argue uh, so I definitely think it draws attention to that and then also just the value we might give to an object which is something he explores too. And he was actually very Catholic and he was interested in the idea of icons and things like that. So is it the one that he touched or that he created physically? Does that make it more valuable? In the case of Andy Warhol, it doesn't. It's more the concept. Um, like even the Brillo pad boxes, things like that, they can just be reproduced. And they're there. Yeah. And they're there, yeah. Um, and then even, as I mentioned earlier, the Silver Clouds, like they, they don't have to be the same ones that were originally in the original exhibition in 1966. So it makes us kind of think about concerns conceptual art what we really value is it the material thing is it the object does it matter in relation to those things but yet here we are kind of looking at these works kind of idolising them doing yeah, what it, he was interested in yeah, so yeah. It's, in some ways it, we inve- we imbue the, we the the value into the piece absolutely. of art that we're looking at we it's turn consensus. it into yeah, yeah, we, we turn it into a piece of art mm. this sounds like a kind of a must see exhibition Jess it is and I would say more than once because you know there's so much to see now I'm not suggesting do the eight hour film but even some of the TV shows that have people like John Waters and Divine you know watching them for 15 minutes you know it's a real entertainment Mm. and then so much more to see and I think it does take a lot longer than you might get in one All right, it certainly sounds as if it's worth a visit Uh, Jess Fahey speaking to us there about Andy Warhol three times out it runs right through until the 28th of January at the Hugh Lane Gallery. So maybe over, dare I say, at the Christmas period when you might have some time to sit and watch more. That might be a good time to get it back for a second or third visit. HughLane.ie for full details. And if you want to learn more about Andy Warhol, Jess is teaching a course in the Hugh Lane. It's called Andy Warhol and the New York Art Scene on Friday afternoons through November and December. And just to remind you that to mark the publication of Claire Keegan's new short story in book form so late in the day, Arena is hosting a public interview with the Booker short Prize shortlisted writer at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera on October the 17th. Author of Foster, obviously, recently made into the Academy Award nominated film on Colin Kuhn and Small Things Like These, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and won several other prizes, including the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction, Kerry Irish Novel of the Year, and the list goes on and on. So Late in the Day has just been made into a film starring Killian Murphy, Kieran Hines and Emily Watson. And we will talk about that and I'm sure much else besides with Claire Keegan. So if you want to join us at the Pavilion Theatre Foreign Arena special with writer Claire Keegan, more information and booking can be found on paviliontheatre.ie.
Now, a competition for you this evening. Last year, the RTE Concert Orchestra introduced a new series of concert called, mu- mu- concerts called Movie Music Masters, where they dive into the work of a few of the great film composers, with Gavin Maloney conducting and myself on presenting duties, chatting to him about what made these uh, composers so special. First concert was a, a total sellout, and we're back now with a new programme, this time focusing on Bernard Herrmann, Danny Elfman, Rachel Portman and Alexander Desplat. I've been listening to the music and it's absolutely stunning stuff. It's on on Thursday the 19th of October at the National Concert Hall and tonight on Arena we have a pair of tickets to give away along with an overnight for two at the Four Star Spencer Hotel on the banks of the River Liffey. To be in with the chance of winning this prize you'll need to text your name and answer the following question to 51551. We'll be announcing the winner before the end of tonight's programme. But here is the question. One of the composers featured on the evening is Danny Elfman who all also composed the theme tune for what fictional family? Here's a clue. I think you'll be able to work that one out somehow or other. So who, the Danny Elfman, who, what was the fictional family that he composed for with that piece of music? 51551 with your own answer and we will uh, announce the winner of the competition before the end of tonight's programme. Now we've all had those, I know certainly of those sliding door moments, the what ifs of life. Writer Mary Morrissey's new novel, Penelope Unbound, projects just such a scenario onto one of the most famous literary muses of all time, Nora Barnacle, companion, wife and inspiration to James Joyce. In Penelope Unbound, we find Nora sitting in a concert room waiting for a tenor who once sang his heart out for her. She has not seen him in many years, though she has carried love, longing and fury for him since he abandoned her at a train station in Trieste some years previously. In Penelope Unbound, Mary Morrissey unhooks Nora Barnacle from her famous husband James Joyce and asks what would have happened if Nora had followed a different path. Delighted to have Mary Morrissey join me on the programme this evening. What a wonderful idea to let us have a good look at Nora and push Jimmy Joyce out of the way so that we can see her in her full glory, Mary. Yes, well, you know, Sean, I felt it was the only way to see Nora Barnacle clearly or in another light. Um, I think every Irish writer, every writer in the world suffers from, you know, the the hovering presence of James Joyce, but no one probably suffered it more than Nora Barnacle. And I felt that this was a way to kind of give her a, give her another life, give mm. her an alternative life. And of course, the problem with, or it's not a problem, but one of the consequences of changing one life, you know, in the fictional world, it's just like real life. You know, you change one life, all the yeah. other lives around it also change. So in the, in the novel, not only has she a different fate, but so has Joyce. Yeah, and so have all of us. I haven't. I've, I've never got to read Dubliners. Um, Ulysses. I've lost several programmes in recent years celebrating the publication of Ulysses. We've an awful lot of back programmes to fill in because <laughs> because of your novel, uh, Mary. But I, I suppose there is a serious point here in in terms of Nora herself. The character you you give us here, she's wild. She's full of humour. Yes, there's melancholy there. There's certainly frustration to her there as well. 
I'm guessing that all of those qualities that you really, I suppose, magnify in the novel are qualities that you feel were there anyway, but overlooked. Well, I don't know so much that they were overlooked, you know. I mean, the um, the Molly Bloom soliloquy is often mistaken as just being Nora, you know, undiluted. And of course, that isn't true. But there are elements of, of Nora in, in that uh, soliloquy. And, you know, to create my Nora, I in fact looked at the language in that and looked at the language generally in Ulysses and... Dubliners um, and, you know, created a kind of a synthesis. I mean, in in many ways, I'm also culturally appropriating Nora Barnacle and, you know, giving the world my version of her. Um, so uh, I'm not all that different from from Joyce in mm. that respect. Uh, the, the other the other aspect that you had to do here, I suppose, as well, Mary, it's clear that you've been reading Joyce, if not for years, certainly very deeply for as your research for this for this novel and also lots of the scholarly works around him. But it opened up a world of language to you that you could dip into with great glee, uh, almost Joycey in, in the way you invent words and sounds. Well, I mean, you have to remember that Nora Barnacle was 20 years old when, you know, she arrived in Trieste. And unlike James Joyce, she didn't have any Italian. And uh, he left her sitting on the bags at the railway station while he went off to scare up some money. And um, mm. uh, the story goes that, you know, he he got involved in a brawl on the main piazza in Trieste and he was held in the cells. We're not sure quite how for how long but certainly she was 10 or 12 hours sitting there waiting and I was trying to imagine you know what that would have been like for a 20 year old in 1904 who had Mm. never been outside of the country and uh, so she she or I do a great deal of mangling of the Italian language as she tries to you know make her way in the world of Trieste Even on a simple level um, her name uh, Nora, and when people say Signora to her, she she reads and hears that differently. Yes, she sees it as C and Nora, and she's wondering how it is that they know her name when she doesn't know them at all. Uh, and even when people say Signora Nora, she, <laughs> which yes. uh, that's very Joycey, even that kind of wordplay, it has that feel of it. Yes, and I mean, you know, it's a playful novel and I intended it to be that way and I had fun, you know, playing with the language of it. Um, uh, You know, so that, you know, the scenario may sound a bit tragic and Mm. melancholic, but in fact, it is quite funny too, I'm hoping. You also give, uh, you give Nora, I guess, more agency in her own sensuality and in her own sexual expression. How important was that to you? Um, Well, I mean... It's always been my impression, what do we know, but it's always been my impression that, you know, she had a great deal of agency, sexual agency with Joyce. You know, I, mm. I, th- I think she was she was the leader there and she certainly was untroubled by any sense of Catholic guilt about sex and, you know, the s- sensuality. Um, but, you know, uh, 
in terms of her sexual activity in in my novel, you know, partly it is a kind of necessity, you know, going back to that girl sitting outside the station, you know, um, as I said to somebody earlier, you know, there were no mobile phones. She couldn't ring up her mother and say, could you wire me some money? This fella has abandoned me, you know. So, you know, she had to make her way in this scenario. She had to make her way in the world and use whatever charms she had, you know. One of the interesting things um, that I think you don't, and I'm not going to say change, but it's not quite how to put it, the love between Nora Barnacle and James Joyce, which, you know, no matter what version, no matter whose side you're hearing this story from, I'm thinking of Neil O'Connor's novel, Nora, where we we hear a lot of the love story from the point of view of of Nora. Uh, We more often hear it from the point of view of James Joyce, or at least scholars talking about James Joyce and this love story. But that love story is still intact in this novel, despite their being apart. Yes. And I mean, I think that's I didn't want to actually dismantle that. I mean, Mm. it wasn't my intention. It was really just to explore, you know, what would they have been like apart? What would he have been like? What would she have been like? It wasn't, as I say, intended to, you know, uh, dismiss or denigrate the relationship because, you know, whatever we might think about and whatever side we might be on, this was a, a, a marriage essentially, that lasted for a very long time through a great deal of privation and trouble, as well as celebrity and, you know, joy. But, you know, it wasn't an easy ride, so to speak. What about the James Joyce that emerged to you? Because obviously this is a fictional James Joyce. The James Joyce that emerged to you as you put your focus on Nora, gave Nora centre stage and, and took her away from what kind of man or character started to come uh, f- to you in in that case in that situation? Well, it, in many ways, you know, I he's off stage for most of the book. I mean, mm. I do give them a reunion at the end, you know, um, but for most of the time, he is just this hovering presence who might appear. She hopes at the beginning, and then she gives up hope of that. Um, so. I mean, one of the things I kind of kept on going back to was, you know, how young they were. They were a very young couple. He was 20, or he was 22, she was Mm. 20. You know, they barely knew one another. They had only been stepping out for four months, you know. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of relationships I had when I was 20. And, you know, I, I, I think it's forgotten how, you know, immature they were. It was a a young love and it was at that stage, you know, at the tentative early stages, even though uh, Nora took this huge gamble to go off with him um, into the unknown. You know, it wasn't so much the unknown for him, but it was for her. Um, so I wanted to to have some of that and I wanted to have the kind of you know, the humanity of the pair of them travelling and getting ratty with one another and, you know, getting off at the wrong station and <laughs> yeah. all the kind of, all that, all those kind of, you know, minor irritations when you're when you're new to someone, you know, and you're not really sure, as I'm hoping 
it comes across. Yeah. Nora's uncertainty. She's just, she doesn't know where she stands with this fella, you know. Yeah, and, 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 and when he doesn't turn up, you, you, even though we do get reasons for that later in the book, but when he doesn't turn up, you can understand that she might have been kind of going, well, thanks for that. Yes, pulling me over, pulling exactly. me over to this foreign country and then abandoning me. And then me, dumping me, yes. Uh, not surprising, and again, we don't want to give it too much away in this term, but Finn's Hotel still has an important role. Yes, well. Which was where they met. Which is where they where they met and where where Nora worked for for some time in 1904, and um, yes, I mean I wave the wand and and uh, she becomes, you know, the proprietor of Finn's Hotel. Uh, so you know she has a completely mm. different relationship with the hotel. Um, when she was there as a young woman, she was you know a chambermaid and you know, under the thumb of, you know, Miss yeah. Fitzgerald and um, she comes back, you know, triumphant, uh, you know, independent businesswoman with you, a bit, with, a, with lots of agency. I think, uh, I'm not sure if it was the last time we spoke, but we certainly spoke about uh, Bella Casey, which is where you kind of give a, little, a lot more agency to the sister, isn't it, of Sean O'Casey in, in, in that particular novel. Uh, are you heading, have you somebody else some um, woman who is often seen purely in terms of a, a, a male that you want to give a chance to put into the limelight? Well, I I think I've covered that now, Sean. You know, <laughs> the next thing will be something completely different. All right. Well, listen, lovely to have spoken with you and congratulations on the novel, Mary. Thank you very much, Sean. Thanks That's for having me. not at all. Mary Morrissey, whose novel Penelope Unbound is out now. It's published by Banshee Press. And so into the final lap of Friday evening and of our album review slot among the artists featured this week, an 80s pop star who's gained many new fans following his performances at Glastonbury, an indie rock singer-songwriter from Michigan who's released his 10th album and a debut album from an Irish-Greek R&B singer. With me in studio this evening, Zara Hederman and Simon Marr. And we'll start with the 80s pop star who's gained many new fans following his performance at Glastonbury, your starter for 10, Simon Marr. Who am I talking about? We're talking about Rick Astley. We are. So tell us <laughs> so more. Rick Ast- so it started off T-Boy in the Stockhake and Warnerman Studios uh, was given a chance they said oh we like your voice was given a chance to record a demo in 87 and the demo that he recorded was never going to give you up he was a megastar overnight like real overnight sensation stuff disappeared into the 1990s but still recorded records and then suddenly went through a phase of becoming cool again since about 2012 played Glastonbury this year played a bunch of Smiths covers for an hour with Blossoms which went went down a storm and now has said, right, I recorded an album at home. Now you all have to listen to it. Right, okay. And his big hit was called Never Gonna Give You Up. One of the tracks from the album (laughs) is called Never Gonna Stop. Never gonna, and you think, 
has he forgotten the lyric? <laughs> Give you up. <laughs> then he goes off into the various versions there. That's Rick Astley. I, I should have pointed out, by the way, that his ninth album is called Are We There Yet? We're not quite there because it, up until last night it was going to be released today and suddenly it wasn't. So we can only play the two singles. Yes. Of the cu- two current singles off the album ahead of the album release. So we're kind of previewing this one rather than reviewing it. It's it's no never going to give you up. You, we're not going to be um, clapping and singing along to that one, really, Zara, are we? No, and the album title, I felt, was a bit uh, too um, kind of... Uh, uh, what should joke. I say? Yeah, but also when I was listening to the album, I was like, are we there yet? Is it done? <laughs> um, and I have to say, I do have... My conscience is very tied with this because I really enjoyed watching him at Glastonbury. And yeah, I you're re- like, he really wowed contemporary mm, audiences Such there, a highlight. He? And even watching him with Blossoms do the Smiths cover, I thought he was brilliant. He's such charisma and he just seems like such a nice person. And then when you also see that he wrote, recorded and produced the album um, all in his home in London, it kind of turned the dagger even harsher into my uh, into my soul reviewing this because I felt so bad just constantly referring to like how flat the production was how derivative it sounded like even we hear there we're never going to give you up or never going to stop sorry, yeah. sorry <laughs> I know, there we go kind of um, happens, isn't it? I just felt he wore his influences far too uh, mm. openly on the sleeve and as we heard there it's very Marvin Gaye-esque yeah. and he has always loved soul music and he did say that this album re- rekindled his love for it and we do get it quite a lot in here but then you also get like some kind of dalliances into almost like a Rag and Bone Man song mm, later on yeah. there's an Adele like ballad there's some kind of Rolling Stones like Jumping Jack Flash stuff even though there's all these great kind of influences there it just really failed to lift me up um, Well Zara talking about how the knife was turning in her soul as she <laughs> stuck the knife into his album and tore it apart yeah. are you in a similar boat Simon? <laughs> do, do you know it was one of those things I was thinking about it as I was coming in I was saying there's, if were it not for the fact that I was reviewing the album I think it would happily pass me by now that I've listened to it and I listened to it a couple of times there's a part of me that actually enjoyed it right. because there's a part of me that kind of said this is somebody who is really is having fun with what they're doing and has earned the right to be able to say, well, this is really what I like doing. OK, let's listen to a track called Dipping My Feet. That, that is, um, what is it called? Dipping Dippin my, my Feet from Rick Assey. And you have to say now, you could kind of bop along to yeah, that yeah, in yeah. a never going to give you up type of way. Yeah, and in fairness, it's a good way of, of starting an album. You know, it's one of those things that the minute that you listen to it and what he's talking about in it is the kind of, is really set out a stall for the rest of the album. You know, is I'm doing this, I'm not going to stop and this is what I like doing. All right. Can we pre- give preview stars <laughs> in your preview? What would you give it if you were reviewing it? Do you know, I'm going to preview it at two and a half. Two and a half. Oh dear, Zara. <laughs> 
I just, I mean, we talked a lot about the music and the flatness, but we didn't even get to touch on some of the lyrics on this album, which made me very uncomfortable sometimes listening to Take Me Back to Your Place in particular. This to me was a one and a half out of five. I really struggled with this and I have to say. And then goes the knife deeper yeah. again. Yeah. One and a half from Sarah. And two, did you say, or two and a half? Two and a half. Two and a half from Simon for Are We There Yet from Rick Astley. And seemingly we will be fully there at this time next week when he releases it. Let's move on to Melina Malone, um, Dublin-born singer, first garnered critical acclaim following the release of her 2020 single Ti Ein Afto, if I'm saying that correctly. This is uh, to do with her Greek heritage uh, and Aphrodite, the title of her new album, certainly brings that to the fore. Let's have a listen to a track called Lover's Sunday. So smooth, isn't it? From uh, Melina Malone and her new album, her debut album, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Aphrodite. Um, quite the voice there, quite the kind of soulful feel of it and the real Amy Winehouse feel of it to my ears at any rate, Sarah? Absolutely. Um, Amy Winehouse, especially the Frank era album, really resonated with me throughout my listening to this. But I do think at the same time, Um, Melina Malone did a really good job at actually just presenting herself as well like Mm. I feel like unlike you know Rick Astley she does have a lot of ideas in here she does have a lot of personality and no small feat as well because there was such um, anticipation for this album even with her early releases we had um, Irish Music Press um, crediting her as being one of the best voices in Ireland and one of Irish music's best kept secrets so huge pressure then with this debut and listening to it even on my first listen I was so struck by how assured and how confident she was and I think that that is down to her production team where she produced it with Adam Shanahan and Alex O'Keefe and I think the three of them together Mm. like you said we had that really smooth Lover Sunday song but she does really well to mix it up you know you have like a good strong pop ballad at the end anywhere there's little interludes in there which kind of Mm. bring a bit of atmosphere too Um, so I found this actually quite dynamic and she was very comfortable in all the different worlds Yeah and what I loved about the interludes was you, you hear the Dublin accent in, yeah. the, in the interludes I wish there was a bit more of that in, in the song or am I being you know I, I could she really bring Irish R&B to a totally new place yeah. by having a little bit more of her own accent I, in the I singing think that, I think that's a very fair point I suppose there is an R&B accent really there is, that yeah. there is and given that this album, well, as much as it is, and you know, a demonstration of her creativity, it's also, I suppose, a business card or a calling card mm. to try and get an owner on the international front. But I think you've got a very good point there. I suspect that with production that smooth, with voices that good, and with the songs that good, if you made it Irish, it could be even better. Yeah, well, Amelda May sings in her own accent. I know it's a yeah. different genre, but you know, yeah. she brings it, she brings it in, her, in her own accent. But um, she, there's there's her Greek. Uh, background and heritage is there in the t- al- album title and in a song called Nectar Honey Iced Tea. Yeah, which she said. Tell what did she say this well, is about. She talks about. It. She said it's a, it's a song of uh, basically womanly rage, you know, and she draws on the stories of uh, you know Medusa, Pandora, all of the the various Greek goddesses as well. And because her mum is Greek, she said she wanted and she needs to be able to express that, and she expressed it very nicely here. Nectar. Tell me what it's like, please I need you to know now 
say now I don't care what the gender is I've never heard Ridge sound quite so nectar honey iced tea as as I have there do you hear Ridge in, in that Sarah? Well sometimes with Rage when you're more composed I think the message can come across maybe a bit stronger Oh you're frightening yeah. me now the way you said that <laughs> so calmly um, But yeah no, and I think she does actually do that really mm, effectively mm. Um, because she also mentioned how this was slightly like a concept album and all about a celebration of the divine feminine as she said and melding it with a lot of feminist texts that she was reading and the Greek mythology and I think with that you know she has done such a great job at bringing mm. us so many radio ready hits and so many courses that I kept noting down how like anthemic they were yeah. like you can yeah. really imagine a crowd singing back to her a lot of the courses that are very yeah. empowering messages which for a debut as well is quite an astonishing feat yeah, to have achieved. Yeah, just going to say that this is a debut album. It's it's quite the calling card. Stars yeah. from you, Zara. Um, I was really impressed with this and think it really highlights a great career ahead of her. So three and a half for me. Three and a half. What are you saying, Simon? Yeah, I, I think it, absolutely right. I think it is definitely worthy of a three and a half and it's really the sort of an album to have that level of confidence on a debut is something very impressive. All right, let us move on then to album number three. And last month, indie rock singer Sufjan Stevens was in the news when he revealed that he was recovering from Guillain-Barre syndrome, a condition that left him unable to walk and also prevented him promoting this album, which is called Javelin, his 10th studio album. Let's have a listen to a track called Goodbye Evergreen. Goodbye Evergreen You know I love you But everything heaven said Goodbye Evergreen, the title of the song there from Sufjan Stevens and his new album Javelin. And as I listen to that, you came in with a piece of news, Zara, tonight that was, I think it was announced just earlier today, just before we came to air, mm-hmm. was it? He, Sophie and Stevens made an announcement about the album? Yeah, he dedicated it to his late partner, Evans Richardson, who passed away in April at the age of only about 43, I think it was that he said. Mm. Um, so that context, I mean, even the context of his illness, even though the album was written long before the illness um, yeah. happened to him the context now of the part his partner passing away is just make songs I think like Goodbye Evergreen what we just heard all the more weighted and all the more emotional and very difficult I think to listen to you know he's re- like talking about being frightened of the end yeah. and a lot of the lyrics I felt on this album you really kind of thought that they were almost about like a relationship in turmoil or a dysfunctional relationship or a relationship that had run its course. But now actually knowing... It's a different context. It's a very totally different, different context, yeah. And, and Sophie Stevens, Simon, put the 10 studio albums to one side. He's written for ballets, he's written for movies, he's been nominated for a Grammy and an Oscar. this is a guy who knows how to write music. Oh, absolutely he does. You know, from the albums that he did about the US states going back probably nearly 20 years now to the point where he is at now and he's able to decide what it is that he wants to do. And even when I was trying to work out that this was his 10th album, I was flicking through a discography and the amount of stuff, it was was ballet. It was songs for ballet was the last thing he was writing. But he had said himself that this was 
to put in quotes one of his more normal albums so like in the, in the traditional album structure but there was a real theme running through it and now after tonight I think we know even more what that theme was and the second song that I want to listen to also I think has a new context given what, what, what the news that Zara told us there Genuflecting Ghost Genuflecting Ghost um, from Sufjan Stevens uh, and his album Javelin and you get a sense there Simon you know I don't know what we listened to there maybe the first minute and a half it starts with the guitar and you can already hear it building it's something he does and particularly in the second last song on the album which is marked explicit I presume because of the title of the track which is Rhymes with Bit Talk but starts with SH so work that one out for yourself yeah Um, that's a big eight and a half minute track and he really, it's, it's all, I don't know, symphonic might be too much, but it certainly has a very broad sp- uh, oh, musical absolutely, spectrum. absolutely, absolutely. Like there are movements within mm. songs here, but it, w- it would be a thing that he would be renowned for is that songs that start off just with the piano or a guitar. And you get the yeah. feeling that that's where the songs had their genesis was just him with the piano or guitar. But he layers on, and when he layers on choirs yeah. and pianos and everything yeah. that goes into them. And they, what happens is they don't, even, they don't build any yes double album 1970s prog rock way they all tend to have a reason to build and it's beautiful Is it very different from uh, you know because there is a subdued quality to it yes there are times when it builds maybe across that big eight and a half minute song but is there a very subdued uh, quality to this in comparison to earlier stuff Sarah? Um, For me this really harked back to his 2015 album Carrie and Lowell which is very introspective Mm. but it also married the more explorative and electronic um, eruptions if you want of say his 2020 album The Ascension and the album here I felt followed a really nice pattern of very slowly um, dipping you into the songs and as we heard on the two songs really gradually and progressively yeah. build so I do think he has married the two sensibilities of his solo material very effectively on this because there is that you could if you were him mm. and so talented you could become very indulgent with what you did with the arrangements now on my first listen I did think that the song with the expletive in the title. Um, I did think that that was a little bit indulgent. But actually, the more I returned to it, the more it actually just made sense of this big coda within yeah. the album. So yeah. and, and it leads into uh, uh, a Neil Young It does, cover. it does. It, it, kneels, it, kneels, or it leans into uh, uh, There's a World, which is a track from Harvest that Neil Young himself said, I was never really too keen on it. But Sufjan Stevens has taken it and literally is saying, this is what you should have done. Okay. And I would imagine Neil Young is sitting at home now going, that's You're what right, they should have done. Yeah. <laughs> flip, um, you, flip you, he'll say. <laughs> he mightn't quite use quite that word. Stars from you, Simon. It is a very solid four. A solid four. And Zara? I thought this was a really beautiful album and a lot to get um, from it with each return. So it was a four as well for me. Okay, a solid four from Zara as well. That's Javelins from Sufjan Stevens, Aphrodite from Melina Malone and coming out next week, Are We There Yet? from Rick Astley, Simon Marr and Zara Hederman, our reviewers on this Friday evening. Earlier, I asked you to identify this piece of music. 
Oh, oh yes, who's going to sing it for me? Da, 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 That's what I asked you to identify from Danny Elfman, um, and of course it was the Simpsons. Was the it was the, the family that was to be identified, and it was identified by Finola Kyo from Limerick. And Finola will be heading off to the Movie Music Masters concert in the National Concert Hall next Thursday, the nineteenth of October. It's going to Waterford later in the year as well, by the way. So watch out for that. But I will see you there, Finola. I'll be presenting myself on the evening. But that is our lot for this Friday night. Ollie, uh, Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Research today was by Leah Murphy. Sound supervision this evening was by Damien Chanel. And tonight's programme was produced by Kay Sheehy. Talk to you Monday once again, 7 o'clock here on RT Radio 1. John Creedon will be with you after the news.